I'm Emmy Award-winning reporter Mara Schiavocampo, joined by Pulitzer Prize-winning journalist Wesley Lowry and former senior magazine editor Keith Reed. Today on Run Tell This, we're joined by Garrett Kennedy, former entertainment reporter for the LA Times, cultural critic, and author of the new book, Didn't We Almost Have It All, in defense of Whitney Houston. She was one of those stories that was such a humongous cautionary tale. We all kind of watched this ending slowly happen. It's been 10 years since we lost one of our greatest talents ever. Garrick shares what he learned about Houston's life and legacy. I think the conversation around drugs was the hardest to have. Plus, we debate the Super Bowl halftime show. Was it the greatest performance ever? Or the NFL's attempt to appease Black fans? Or maybe both? Hey guys, all right, let's start with the uh, Super Bowl since that's pretty fresh for all of us. Um, There's a lot of debate about the significance of the performance given the backdrop of racism, uh, allegations of racism in the NFL. So let's start with that. Garrick, your take? You know, we heard so much around um, us failing to understand the move. And and I remember um, a few years ago, um, you know, on Twitter when when Jay-Z got that deal and it was like, you know, he's he's playing chestnut checkers and y'all just don't get it. And I understand the folks who want to believe that just like this approach around the music is sort of like the entry point. But also I think, you know, there's a part of me that's like, I'm gonna still watch these shits every year. So like, I kind of always like, I have no dog in the fight. But as the other part of me that's like always kind of frustrated where it's like, damn, like why is it that like our ways to extend ourselves into like, white homes and for white folks to like appreciate us in a particular kind of way is always by like song and dance or like running a ball. Right. Because <laughs> that's going to lead to black owners and black head coaches, right? Right. No, yeah. It's it's hard because there's no real, you know, every time you see that there's like an attempt to have a conversation around it, it's sort of this thing of like, oh, you're attacking Jay-Z or oh, you're attacking. Like the fact that we just don't allow ourselves to have any nuance around the conversation is just so exhausting <laughs> at a exactly. certain point. That's exactly what I was thinking as you were talking, right? That we force this conversation into this very particular like binary, right? And we know that's not how it works, right? On the one hand, it is it is pretty remarkable that a bunch of these artists who never would have made it onto such yeah. a mainstream platform previously, hip hop as a genre, which never would have gotten this type of respect. It, it is something to see uh, that on this type of mainstream stage in a way that very often black artists have not received the opportunities to do. That's 100% true, right? And that's also a completely separate conversation um, yep. in a lot of ways from this conversation about what's actually happening inside the NFL with its coaches, with its players, uh, with its policies and its ownership groups. Um, and, and so we can't let one thing distract us from the other, but also we can have both conversations. Look, we all deal with racism in various ways as we navigate our daily life. We deal with it at work, we deal with it. So my thought about the halftime show in, in this sort of binary framing around, you know, whether or not it was a, a net good or, or, or not, is like, I think most people are kind of looking at it like, listen, we know the NFL is racist, just like I know my job. I know that racism exists on my job, just like I know mm-hmm. that racism exists when I get in my car. But I don't stop driving my car just because I'm about because I may run into a racist cop. I don't stop going to work just because there's a glass ceiling and I don't stop, you know, and I don't stop sending my kid to my kid to school just because, you know, we just because there are structural issues in in education right now, right? Like we can yeah. ex- we can exist in this space and we have 
throughout the entire history of our presence in, the, in this country existed in all these spaces where there are things that we have to do or that we choose to do despite the presence of racism. Why? Because racism exists everywhere. And if we stopped doing everything because there was racism, we would do nothing. <laughs> well, but I, but we I don't have a choice to do nothing. But I understand why people choose to watch. I watched because those are some of my favorite artists ever. I went to UCLA in the late 90s, so you couldn't tell me nothing last night. And I wanted to see this show. And I know a lot of other people who watched, but also at the same time felt some kind of way about the NFL, about the way they treated Kaepernick, about the new Mm -hmm. allegations from Brian Flores. Mm -hmm. So I understand that there's that duality, right? My bigger problem is with the people in positions of power, that you have the NFL who's been facing these calls for social justice for years now, and their response is, let's put a bunch of black entertainers in front of the camera. Let's not provide any extra opportunities in positions of power or influence. That infuriates me. I'm frustrated with the artist, Dr. Dre, hip hop's first billionaire. He didn't have to say yes to that. Jay-Z himself turned the Super Bowl down in 2017. I would say, wait a minute, this is kind of counter to what you say your cultural and social values are. So your presence here runs counter to that. That's how I see it. Is it though? I mean, I'm just a question though, because I mean, you know, Snoop is telling us hot pockets at the time, you know, so it's kind of like. Yes, he, it's been a long time <laughs> since he's been a gangster, but <laughs> <laughs> that's fair. And yet, I think if I'm if I'm Dre, if I'm Snoop, if I'm Mary J. Blige, if I'm 50, if I'm, I'm whomever, right? And I'm taking this check and I'm taking, I'm answering the call from Jay-Z in this moment to take this check, to play this gig. Big exposure, you ain't getting no problems. In this moment, right? <laughs> I think I do have to, I think the thing that is fair to ask of them, right, is how do they they reconcile those things, right? And so, for example, I think there's plenty of press that comes with, you know, Snoop's doing interviews right now. Is Snoop talking about Brian Flores in the the lawsuit? Is he talking about, like, like there's there's a world where, um, look, at the end of the day, I'm not going to tell. Yeah, are you playing with barbels? I'm swirling my little last name. I'm not going to tell a black man or a black woman that the way to fix racism is to take money out of their pocket. Right? Like, that's not that. Like, is it, like dispositionally, is not going to be like how I imagine the solution. Right? Like, yeah. But yeah. I can also say, all right, but if you're going to take that check, what comes with that? How do you rectify those things? Mm-hmm. What conversations are you having? What are you? And, and I think that's a fair question to ask of all these folks. Right, that they all do have the exposure in this moment. They have the microphones in front of their faces. They have the biggest platforms in the world. What are they doing beyond Eminem taking a knee or do you know like what? But what are they saying and what are they doing in this space? Right. By the way, I think it's a much more complicated conversation for someone like Kendrick than someone like than someone who's selling us hot pockets like Snoop. Well, Kendrick was the most disappointing to me because I really expected, I mean, I expected more from him. I hate to sound condescending or, I mean, if Eminem can take a knee, why couldn't he do something? I strongly okay. disagree because I think you're asking something of a person who ultimately I'm, I'm putting off of my city. Like, I, like, I, like, I'm not trying to put words in Kendrick's mouth at all, but I really do genuinely feel like the saying yes to it, the participating, all of it. I would be hard pressed if there was a thought given to Kaepernick or what's happening in industry at all. This is a moment for West Coast hip hop. This is Dre, like this is what we're celebrating. Miss me with the rest of that. Cause that's not my responsibility. 
I think that speaks to the complex nature of what we're talking about. We're talking mm-hmm. about a sport that's like religion for people that they are deeply devoted and committed to. We're talking about hip hop music, getting this huge opportunity, seeing our icons and giants on the stage in LA. It is incredibly layered. And I don't think there's an easy answer. In LA with the with the LA football team playing in the street. Right. Like, yeah. and it's just like, like it's, you know, again, like it, Kendrick gets the phone call and it's like, all right, we're honoring West Coast rap at the Super Bowl with Dre. Right. Like you about to build you about to build the map map of Compton on the ground. That's the end of the conversation. So turning now to the one thing we can all agree on, which is Garrick's new book. Everybody should go out and buy it, read it. Didn't we almost have it all in defense of Whitney Houston? Garrick, welcome. Thank you. I know we threw you into a conversation you were not prepared to have, (laughs) but now we're turning to the one that we were prepared to have. Welcome. Thank you. Thank you for having me. I remember, I was, I was thinking about this, Garrett, when we were texting this last weekend. I, I remember, I remember getting a call from you a decade ago when Wendy mm, mm-hmm. And I remember, so I remember where I was. I was at my house, my senior year of college. I remember pacing around on the phone talking to you. Um, can you talk a little bit about what the process of this book was for you? Yeah, I mean, you know, Losing her, um, it was such an interesting level of grief because you had, you know, on one end, it is this voice that, you know, being a Black person in America, I mean, I don't know if there was ever a time in my household that Whitney was not a part of it. I mean, she was just a part of my um, consciousness around music from the earliest memories that I have of it. So you have that on one level. On another level, you have um, the tragicness of of obviously how it happened. But then you also then had the fact that I was a young reporter at the LA Times and I had met her two days before she died. Um, I was covering an event at the Beverly Hilton, which is where she ultimately passed away. And, you know, just moving through that day of of what that scene was in that particular moment, which is, you know, this is a person I'm observing, they are under the influence, but I'm here to write about Brandy and Monica and Clive Davis in, in this Clive Gala and, and the rehearsals for this moment. I am not here to write about Whitney Houston. So there was a moment of protection that I felt, you know, I had to extend um, because I'm also, I'm in a room full, it's a, it's a, it's a press day. So I'm, there's probably a hundred plus journalists in this room many of whom do not look like me or Brandy Monica or Whitney. So when they see her and, you know, they are reacting in a way that is how many of us re- were reacting, you know, in those last years before she left. So there was gawking, there was laughing, there was people trying to sneak and, you know, take videos of her on their phone. Um, all of this was happening, but I was standing, you know, around a well, couple because of Because why? Other... Was she was she behaving erratically? She was she was behaving erratically, but it was also really clear that she was intoxicated. You know, she was wet from the pool. Um, she was disheveled in her in her outfit. She was pacing, you know, walking really fast between things, but also had such a level of unawareness of the reality of her surrounding, which is there's a room full of cameras in here. There's a room full of people looking at you. 
there was multiple times that she came and went. Um, and it, and it was a distraction, you know, that's just me being really honest about it. Um, but one thing that stood out in my mind was that as I was standing with a group of black, um, reporters, she looked at all of us and she waved to us and we waved back. Um, and I think it was that kindness of her seeing people that looked like her, that were the only people in the room not laughing. I mean, I think it was just that simple. Um, and then we had a small conversation outside, um, because she was coming and going, coming and going. And when I went and stood outside, I got this tap on my shoulder and it was Whitney. Um, so losing her, obviously, I was thinking of, I just shared space with a human being and now they're gone. So that but just had its own impact. what did she say when she tapped you? Um, so we had this really short, brief conversation, you know, that was the moment where I was just like, you know, I've loved you for all these years, like, thank, you know, thanking her for the music and telling her, you know, this is the reason why I'm into branding and all this kind of stuff. And just a really just casual conversation, you know, she's holding my hand and is, you know, she was being Auntie, you know, Auntie Whitney and is like, you know, thank you, baby. But then she asked me, you know, if, if the ladies were still inside, you know, rehearsing. So I'm like, yes, they're still inside. You mentioned the kind of the laughter, the snickering, the ridicule. Yeah. And yeah. what you say in the book is that you wanted to have a different conversation about Whitney with a new understanding and appreciation of how we discuss mental health, addiction, celebrity, sexuality. So what is it that you set out to do with this book? What, what was the side that you wanted to show that was different from kind of the scandal catalog that we tend to see when it comes to Whitney? It was two things. I wanted to show how different we were as people, um, how different we treated celebrities, how differently we spoke about them, um, how limited our cultural understandings were around a lot of things, particularly around sexuality um, and drugs and mental health, but also around the fact that, you know, one of the one of the bigger things for me around Whitney and her story was Whitney was a black woman in America and lots of things that she went through um, that we judged her for was because of the fact that she was a, a black woman from Newark, New Jersey. So we had our own expectations of what that was supposed to look like because she was from the church, because she was, you know, the great Sissy Houston's daughter, because she had this lineage that she stood upon. Um, so there was so much that we, yes, we shamed her for. So, you know, one of the bigger themes of the book is shame. And you mentioned um, her being a black woman and how that contributed to the way that she was perceived and seen. You know, she was one of the first black pop artists um, to be introduced to the MTV generation. I mean, they were coming yeah. up at the same time. Um, can you talk about how being a black artist in the pop space influenced her work, her life, the way she was seen, her challenges? How did that affect her life and career? You cannot have a conversation about her and not talk about race. What it meant for her to stand at the Super Bowl, as we've been talking about Super Bowl, and do the national anthem in 91, middle of Gulf War, all of these things are happening. What that moment looks like, what that moment symbolized, not just for her, but for everyone. What it looks like for someone to blow, do blow this door open of MTV. We can forget now, because all we think of when we think of MTV is we think of ridiculousness and Teen Mom and all this other stuff. But there was a time where that was make or break. But it was also a network that was denying us the fact that you had to have Michael Jackson's label head go and be like, if you don't start playing Billie Jean, we are going to talk about how the fact that you're denying Black artists any um, airtime on this network. So there was just so many barriers that she had broken, but it also added to the cost because there was two things that were at play with Whitney. She always had to deal with black folks sort of questioning her blackness, but also white folks questioning her blackness. So there was this 
duality to what she was kind of experiencing with how she was perceived to the point where, you know, if you go and look at every major interview Whitney Houston did, pretty much for the first like 15, 20 years, um, there's, a, there's a question about race because that moment at the Soul Train Awards when you were booed by your community became part of your story. That moment when you put out I'm Your Baby Tonight and people see it as, oh, this is you responding to our criticism. So now you're trying to be Black. You know, that followed her. Her getting with Bobby and, 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 and all of us, we all did it. We all said, this is a very strategic thing because people are saying that you're gay. So now you don't went out and you don't got this bad boy and now you need the street cred. So that's what you're doing. You can't possibly have loved this man. You know, you needed to do this for your own image. That was the talking point for the entirety of, of, of her existence in a public space. And I thought not only how tragic is all of that, but how incredibly unfair. You know, we talk about this woman and we will say the things of she is the voice. She is, you know, one of the greatest artists of all time, X, Y, Z. But we don't study her because we don't take her artistry serious. We don't want to have a conversation around her that doesn't really just include her tragedies because I get it. They were so, you know, it, 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 she was one of those stories that was such a humongous cautionary tale that, yeah, we all kind of watched this 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 ending slowly happen. There's two ways that you can write a, write a book like this that's, yeah. that's sort of semi-biographical. One is you can be relevatory Meaning, I'm bringing some facts to the table, and I've and I've gone down the down the investigative reporting rabbit hole, and I found out all of these things. You can be Kitty Kelly, right? You can <laughs> you can do that, or you can or you can be contextual. Meaning, mm -hmm. here are all of the things that we already know, but let's look at that in a, in a different way. And it sounds like you're trying to do the latter. Is that is that right? I wanted to I wanted to really ground this book in cultural criticism because again, I didn't think that her career or her artistry or her life was taken seriously in the way that we take princes or the way that we, you know, separate to obviously his other complications, but the way that we will look at Michael Jackson and the way that we will write time and time and time and time again about this very limited scope of his career as the greatest. And you can't even mention another artist around him without there being, you know, an argument. But the other thing that's so interesting about somebody like Whitney is because she has a story that is so sensational, you know, that's just the truth of the matter. There is an expectation that any book that's going to exist is going to be, here's the next piece of the puzzle. Here is the next, you know, dark secret to uncover here is you know oh he's gonna learn you know the first intersection where she got high or you know the first place where her and robin went and slept together or you know all these other things but i thought it was important to have a book that was rooted in scholarship because she never had that i'm going to try to challenge you with as much humility as i can because i respect you greatly as a writer i asked one of my one of my oldest friends a few weeks ago two weeks ago I'm sorry. And he had, he, he, he had, thank you, um, was hiding in a, a, a long time addiction mm -hmm. and you could see it, but a lot of us didn't challenge him on it. And it was sort of a full circle thing because we, we all grew up in the same neighborhood. And when we, you grow up and we've all seen this, like you see, you, 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 you call people names, do thing, crackhead, you know, right. what, you know what I mean? Hype, whatever you, the names that we, that we call for people in our communities. And, but you never imagine that being 
you you don't imagine it being one of you until it is one of you. Mm-hmm. And this is a person who was like brother. Like we 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 go back thirty five years, and I got a call on Saturday morning that he's gone, and I'm now wrestling with what what does it mean to have been the friend of an addict, mm-hmm. of somebody who who perished that way, and I think it's important when we have the pen and we have the microphone and we have the access and the ability to tell stories that that you do that we challenge people's notions of what it means oh, to be an addict percent. and to yeah. be and that's that, that. and that's and that's not that's not me saying that that's not in there that I'm not doing that that I'm not having that challenging conversation um this is me saying if you don't want to even try to have the conversation if you don't want to meet me there there's nothing here for you in this book mm-hmm. you know and part of what this book is is reflection on the fact that we were all different um and you know and people have felt such a way you know especially when they're like well you keep saying we i never laughed at any of it and i'm like okay you know okay if if you saying that because that might make you feel better now sure but i don't believe you and why i don't believe you in that moment is we were so loud about it back then. And and the reason that it was so loud was because we were kind of all still consuming it. Even if you might not have maybe laughed, that doesn't then mean that you didn't pick up the National Enquirer when you saw her sister-in-law post those pictures of you know, the quote unquote drug den. That didn't mean that you didn't have some opinion every time you saw Bobby and it's like, ah oh, man, you know, Bobby's really, you know, bringing her down. So yeah, I'm, this is not me saying that I walk away from those conversations. But I'm also, you know, at the same time, I wanted to, you know, reframe a moment like, you know, crack is whack and like how we all have only seen those three words when we think about Whitney in a particular mm-hmm. context versus, you know, for me, I also couldn't understand, even though, yes, they were right. We are rock stars. This is part of and this is what we're doing. There was a part of me that's like, sure, that's accurate, but you're also forgetting that you and Bobby are two black people on national television talking about getting high. You're not allowed to do that. We're not allowed to be that. You can, there's hundreds of, you know, the list can go on of how many white rock stars, pop stars that were into drugs and we celebrate them for that. I think the conversation around drugs was the hardest to have in in the book um, because it is the one thing that I think everybody even if they might not judge her for it at least knows her for and there's just no way around that Derek, you mentioned you know there was nobody to say no and i wonder how much that accounts for how much of behavior her behavior we saw that was public so you compare Mm -hmm. her to say prince and his struggles with addiction which really Mm -hmm. we didn't know about until after he died you know michael jackson the same thing we knew michael jackson was strange you know we saw the documentary of him dangling the baby out of the window and you know walking around with the masks you know pre-covid that was very strange but we didn't necessarily know that he was a drug user then after he died the information came out about the propofol um and, and some of the other things with whitney houston it was very apparent because she was often in public behaving Mm -hmm. like she was high. There are kind of all these moments that have come to define her, the call with Wendy Williams, the interview with Diane Sawyer, you know, running and jumping on Bobby as he's released from prison. How do you explain that now? I think the thing that's really, is really interesting is, you know, and it goes back to the conversation I was having around race with her, is there was an era that we, 
as black folks, you know, at a certain point looked at Whitney and was like, okay, so now you two ghetto. You know what I mean? Like there was this moment, you know, especially with her and Bobby, and I think of the moment of the running and the jumping, and I'm not seeing that as somebody under the influence. I'm seeing that as somebody who's happy to see her man. You know what I mean? I wasn't trying to ever fault them for that or fault them for, you know, not being smarter and trying to hide it or whatever, because I also wanted to have the conversation around the fact of they were doing things that were similar to lots of people in the entertainment industry at the time that it was happening. But we only gave Whitney and Bobby Waterwall coverage when they got caught with a little bit of weed because they were Whitney and Bobby Brown. You know, it wasn't it wasn't, you know, the same way that we looked at, you know, other artists. So us seeing these other parts of her, even her even her smoking cigarettes was contra- you know, that was controversial. And just there was this level of um perfection that was expected because of how she was presented to us so that made this conversation really complicated to try to have here because some of it is yeah some of it is just rebelling also some of it was just who she was and she was trying to hide it from us as long as she could um and then some of it too was just like her also being like i do not believe i have a problem i like to have fun that idea of I have a problem, we did not we did not receive that from her until early 2000s. Um, but before that, she already had an overdose um, on the set of Waiting to Excel. That was passed off as um, her problems. The same way that some of these um, concerts that she had canceled early on was attributed to, you know, brief illness or the flu or whatever, which, you know, now we have learned it was other things. But I think, yes, that was her her trying to be smart and the people around her trying to cover this up, but also the people around her trying to keep this thing going as as long as possible, because that's the downside of celebrity. And that's and I and, and I think that's nothing to do with, you know, yeah, some of it is the family dynamic, of course, because your family's gonna always try to protect you as long as possible. But it's ultimately Whitney Houston being one of the biggest stars on the planet, that's a lot of money that's coming in and rolling in. And so trying to protect that as long as possible, sometimes the line is whatever it needs to be in order to keep the money going. So some of the, some of that I think is is entirely, completely entirely about the music industry. And what we don't mm-hmm. know about it is that is is that it can be very damaging to the to to its product, which is the performer. Yeah. Um, because we want to keep that we want to keep that product rolling off the assembly line as long as we possibly can. If we can get you to the show, we'll get you to the show. If we can, you know, as long as you can go out there and sing and sing that song, we'll deal with the rest of it at afterwards. But as you know, we want to keep that product. I think for a lot of people who might listen to this and who may have had someone who succumbed to addiction in in their life, there there are there are a lot of ways, man, that you can that you can stand. That you can look in somebody's eye who who you love, and tell yourself that 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 what you see ain't what you see. Yeah, and that's that's a. And I'm and I'm so and I'm that's, so that's glad a kick, that's the kick in the nuts, man. I mean, yeah. it, it just. And I'm and I'm so glad you you're bringing that into the conversation because you know, it was the hardest part of this journey is you know how am I going to write about this particular thing in the story. We know how the story ends. We hate how the story ends. You know, there were so many of us. And I think back to, you know, that moment, you know, right before we lost her, you know, going to my editor and being like, 
hey, I saw this. It feels unkind to write this in this piece. Um, but I have to acknowledge that she was here. I mean, she's still Whitney Houston. But just just going back to, you know, an editor and being like, what do I what do I do here? You know, what is the language that we use? Because this is what I saw, but also was I in a room with her? No. You know, so I can't, I'm not going to then say, oh, somebody was high. Yes, I know, I know people look like they were high, and that was what I saw, but I can't write that. I'm still a journalist, so I can't I can't write that in this moment. So, you know, at the time we just used the words, um, loose and lively, that's how we described, you know. <laughs> loose um, and lively. See, loose and lively, that's how we described seeing her. You know, and then she dies two days later, and this is now the moment where it becomes you have to write everything you saw you have, because there's now this breaking story and everybody's trying to figure out these last 48 hours and piecing on the puzzle, you know, the whole puzzle together. And, you know, even writing in that moment of what I saw felt like such a deep betrayal of this person I cared about just as an artist, because it felt like, okay, well now we're doing the thing that we didn't want to do a couple of days ago, which is the story is about someone being under the influence. And that feeling so incredibly unfair, even though now obviously it's this tragic story. Um, and that was sort of a burden that I carried for a long time. You know, those were the, my first TV appearance ever was today's show because I had to now go say what I saw inside this ballroom. Um, and I think about a lot of the comments that I got from people of like, God, you just are, you on all these shows just telling her business like that. And it was just like, you know, you're, I was a young reporter. I had no real experience around um, what we're supposed to do. And also at the same time, in, in some fairness to myself, we had not arrived to a different place around covering, you know, celebrity um, trauma in this particular kind of way. I'll also say I've been talking for weeks now, and this is the first real conversation around it. Everyone else, the question is still rooted in the gossip part of it. I kid you not, this I've lost count of how many interviews. This is the first one where it was a human conversation around addiction and the impact and what that looks like and how that feels when we lose the people that we care about. It's the first time. And it also does not surprise me that the first time that it's happening is with people who look like me. It does not surprise me because that is that's part of what her story was. I really appreciated the intent and, and the stated intent up front of looking back through all we've learned over the years. You know, you say we were different and we mm -hmm. were different. You know, I mm -hmm. remember the way I consumed Britney Spears's um, downfall, right. which now I don't even consider it a downfall. Now that we know so much more about yeah. her children, she couldn't get access to her children. And as a mother, now it all makes perfect sense. She wasn't yeah. having a meltdown. She was having a mother's response to yes. being forcibly separated from her children. But I remember yeah. how voraciously I consumed the blogs and the Us Weekly and the, and I'm ashamed of that. But when you know better, you do better. Right. Same thing with Paris Hilton. I remember how kind of gleefully we all consumed that leaked sex tape. And now looking back on it, seeing that she was a teenager, she was 18 at the time. And that that material was leaked by a grown man. Um, yeah. She says it against her, you know, against her will without her consent. So we're seeing all of these things 
through the lens of compassion and what we've learned and what we accept about humanity and with grace and uh, mental illness and addiction. And so I really appreciated that that was what you set out to do here was to take everything we've learned as a, as a society and to apply it to a story that we think we all know and to learn something new. So I, I really appreciate that approach. Um, the book is Didn't We Almost Have It All in Defense of Whitney Houston. Where can people find the book and where can they learn more about you and your reporting? They can find the book wherever books are sold. Although I've heard that it's completely sold out physically at Barnes and Noble. So that made me <laughs> happy to hear. Um, but you know, you can follow me on Twitter at Garrett Kennedy, same for Instagram. Um, I'm also at um, GarrettKennedy.net. And I have a Facebook newsletter, Coda. You can hit that, coda.bulletin.com. Great. Garrett, thank you so much. Thank you guys for having me. Hey, don't forget to subscribe and please leave us a five-star review. And the conversation continues on social media. Please follow us on Twitter and Instagram at runtellthis underscore. Check out new episodes every Wednesday. Runtell This is an independent production of Mara Scampo, Inc.